Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Minister directed to uh, the appropriate independent officials to follow up on that, uh, on that, those allegations. The ombudsperson did not provide uh, sufficient information to the uh, to the, uh, the officials in place to be able to follow up on these allegations. Sounds confident, doesn't he? This this whole issue of sexual misconduct within the Canadian military is such a huge matter. And we just in the last hour spoke with Colonel Michel Drapeau about uh, the case of um, Stephanie Raymond. Ten years, ten years she's been fighting for justice and and fighting all the way to the Supreme Court and fighting against a military that actually threw her out of the the military because she accused an individual who's going to plead guilty on the 29th of March of... uh, of rape, we're told. Aaron O'Toole, he's the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, former Veterans Affairs Minister, former member of the uh, RCAF. And uh, Mr. O'Toole, before we do anything else, I want to talk to you about this issue, but before we do anything else, I want to make it understood that unbeknownst to you, at another time, I spoke with people with veterans in this country, veterans organizations, and they had nothing but good things to say about how you treated them, how you dealt with them, and this was totally divorced from what we're talking about today. I just want to make that known. So you come from veterans groups with a lot of support. Now, what do you say? What's the issue? What's your concern? Where do you want to see action on what's happening in the Canadian government now, with the Canadian government, with Mr. Sajjan and uh, with the former ombudsman. And now you just heard what the prime minister had to say. Please, go ahead, sir. Well, thank you, Roy. It's clear that many women have been failed by this government, by the Canadian Armed Forces, and by a system over the last number of years that uh, has allowed harassment and uh, sexual misconduct allegations to sit out there with no action. And I've said a few times over the last month, we need to make sure that people uh, like these women who put their country first, who are willing to put their life on the line for their country, has a country that stands behind them and has their back. And that's that hasn't been the case. And the fact that Mr. Trudeau, you could hear him, he he knew about this allegation. He and Mr. Sajan for three years, Roy, and not only did they didn't do anything and now he's sort of blaming the ombudsman for goodness sakes they promoted general vance and gave him a raise when they extended his contract a year later so there was they knew there was an outstanding allegation yet they still chose to give him a retroactive raise and they extended his contract for him to become the longest serving chief of defense staff that shows a callous disregard for people that step up and give it all to their country. And you talked about my time at Veterans Affairs. I couldn't solve everything. And in some ways, I wish I could have done more. But veterans always had 
two things for me, my utmost respect and honesty. And I don't think we're getting that with Mr. Trudeau or Mr. Sajan. So when you were Veterans Affairs Minister, were you aware, were you troubled about any sexual misconduct within the CAF? I was troubled by the fact that there was there was a culture that needed to be to be stopped. You know, I, when I was in Roy, there was there were trailblazing women who were exceptional. I flew uh, in the Sea King community and, and served with some incredible women. Uh, one of which now I flew with is is now the new commandant, the first female commandant of the Royal Military College. Very proud of some of these exceptional people, and they were all trailblazers in these operational roles. But clearly there was a, a culture of looking the other way for harassment right up from inappropriate comments to, to clearly physical instances of harassment and what could be sexual assault. And that needed to be addressed. And when we had the Deschamps report that uncovered that, my, my advice was, be, was the top general, the chief defense staff, has to be beyond reproach because we need to, we need to clean this up and send a signal that if you want to serve your country, you can do so with our respect and free from harassment or intimidation. Now, you know that Mr. Trudeau and uh, Minister Sajjan and others in the Liberal Party will point the finger directly back to the Conservative government of Stephen Harper, in which you served as a minister, and say it was their responsibility. They're the guys who didn't stop the promotion uh, or the, the appointment of uh, General Vance. What do you say when, when they bring that up? Well, that is... One, not true, and, and two, it's the way they're trying to change the channel. The, the three years ago, when a direct complaint was brought up to the minister, he didn't want to hear it. In fact, he pushed away. You, you probably saw the reporting. He put his hands up, stopped the meeting, and ultimately he fired the ombudsman, or they indirectly pushed him out. That was a direct allegation that needed to be investigated. There should have been a freeze immediately. So that, that's the reality here. The, the vetting that has happened for the last two chiefs of defense staff, uh, uh, Vance and McDonald, clearly was insufficient. So a month ago, Roy, I asked for uh, investigations to be independent of the Canadian Armed Forces. I asked for a freeze on all promotion and salary increases for our general and flag officers because we have to show this needs to stop and to, to give that confidence back we have to take the investigation outside. And I hate saying that as a veteran because I'm very proud of the Canadian Forces. I'm proud of the men and women who step up for us. But we owe it to them to show how seriously we're going to deal with this. Uh, I, I have to get, we only have a few minutes left with you, so I, I have to get at some other issues with you. But this is critical. This is really, really so significant. you think of any parents who have a daughter serving in the Canadian Armed Forces right now? <laughs> They have questions. Now, let, let me get to the issue of the uh, rollout of the vaccine. Um, and I've, I've deviated a little bit from the questions I said I was going to ask you, and I'm doing this because just before I went on the air and I read the email from a Toronto uh, listener, he, uh, he wrote, I took my 88-year-old father to Sunnybrook yesterday to get his first injection of the Pfizer vaccine. Once out, he showed me that his second vaccine will not be in three weeks, but rather in four months. Is this a political issue, he wants to know? What do you make of that, Mr. O'Toole? What would you do if you were the Prime Minister and this was happening now? And I, I understand that this board, the the uh, the group of doctors, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, they meet infrequently and they're advisory, but what would you do if they advised you in this matter? Well, we've been asking this question, Roy, because we do think it's 
political. And the reason why they're making this massive extension to the dosing period is because we don't have sufficient supply. And that was admitted this week at, at committee, the great work done by Michelle Rempel-Garner, our health shadow minister, has revealed that. Can you imagine they're changing the recommended uh, use of this vaccine approved by Health Canada, and they didn't even consult the creator or manufacturer. Pfizer wasn't consulted when they changed to the four-month period. Uh, there's immunologists, some of the leading ones in Toronto, are saying this is improper. It's, it's actually turning into off-label usage of, of a drug, a drug that is a new drug to begin with. So health officials have already said this would not be an issue if we had the steady supply that we were promised last December. So we think uh, the prime minister has to be transparent with people. Was this pushed on the advisory committee because uh, of the lack of supply? We've heard from officials that it was. So this is turning it into Mr. Trudeau trying to politicize the vaccination process while he's posturing for an election. Okay, I spoke yesterday with Yves Giroux, parliamentary budget officer. I asked him about the fact we haven't had a federal budget for more than two years. Does it bother him? Yes, he said. Of course it bothers him. We need to know how our money's being spent. And he suggested that perhaps if the federal government had issues with trying to figure out how to present a budget, they might just want to go to the provinces who haven't had a problem presenting budgets. Uh, your thoughts on that briefly? Well, it's the ultimate abdication of leadership, Roy, by Mr. Trudeau and his team. The longest period in Canadian history, the only G7 country that has not been able to to put forward a budget, yet they are asking for a 57% increase to Canada's debt ceiling. It's going to be $1.83 trillion, but they're not telling anyone what they want to spend the increased spending on. That should scare people when they're basically asking for a line of credit and not telling you what they're going to be spending it on. So this is another case that we feel they're doing this to position things ahead of an election so no one really has a chance to look. They're changing the rules on vaccines. They're pushing off the the, the, the budget. They're not taking accountability for this crisis in the military. They're not willing to lead because they want to mislead people ahead of an election, and I think it's shameful. Okay, I do have one more question I'm going to squeeze in, and it's this. Last time you were on the air with me, I quoted Justin Trudeau. I asked you whether you thought he was lying. I'm going to ask you again. We played that clip earlier, the one at the beginning of the interview. You heard what he said. Do you think Mr. Trudeau is lying about what he says he knows or didn't know about what's going on between Mr. Sajjan, Mr. Walburn, and the, the whole issue before Parliament? Roy, I think a lie can be through omission, omitting when you know more. So, yes, I do. His story has changed over the last number of weeks when he said at first he wasn't aware. Now he's aware, and his team was aware of the allegation that came in, yet they did nothing. And as I said, they extended Mr. Vance a year later and gave him a raise. So I think I think the prime minister is responsible here, and it sends a horrific signal, as you said, to, to the women serving our country and their family to think that they sat on something for three years as opposed to dealing with it. The Conference Board of Canada, in February's Labour Force survey, found, quote, significant improvement among industries that have suffered greatly over the previous two months, notably retail trade. 
And the survey found employment grew by almost 260,000 in Canada, 88,200 full-time jobs were filled, and 171,000 part-time jobs were filled as well. Pedro Antunes is the uh, chief economist for the Conference Board of Canada. He's back with us on the program. Mr. Antunes, thank you very much for the time. Those numbers surprise you? Well, um, we were pleased to see the rebound in uh, the February numbers. We had a big jolt uh, as, uh, you know, two provinces in particular had shutdowns in December and January, and that was Ontario and Quebec. And we saw, you know, essentially over well over 200,000 jobs lost in January. What we saw uh, this time in February was uh, essentially a rebound in those two provinces. So that was good news for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those are good numbers, 260,000 jobs, 88,000 of them uh, full-time. The next question is always going to be, and I don't know if this can be answered with a one-month number, but is it a blip or a trend? Well, yeah, I think what, we, what we've seen is essentially... <laughs> Uh, not much of a trend up or down in the last few months, to, uh, to be honest. Uh, we saw, essentially, at the worst of this, we lost 3 million jobs, as I'm sure your listeners know. Uh, that, in, in fact, we lost about 28% of the work effort, if, if you look at the total hours lost back in March and April of last year. And we had a strong recovery over the summer, but you know, into the fall and winter, we've essentially been stagnating 3 or 4% below where we should be. So we're still... 600,000 jobs off of where we were prior to COVID-19. Is it, uh, you mentioned Western Canada, is it regional growth? Uh, well, in fact, the, the rebound that we just saw is mostly Ontario and Quebec coming back uh, from those closures. Uh, I think when we look at across the board, most of the provinces have essentially suffered similar impacts. Uh, we have seen eastern provinces perhaps, rec- uh, you know, not get hit as, as hard because they had that Atlantic bubble. Uh, but for the rest of the for the rest of the country, we've seen very similar kind of patterns in employment and very similar industries getting hit and very similar uh, cohorts getting hit. Youth and women and uh, the the kind of lower wage uh, occupations. Yeah, I was about to ask you whether the, this is sectoral growth that we're seeing and uh, the energy sector. I imagine, and I looked at your numbers, the energy sector we're not seeing as much as we'd like to see. But other than that, is is it predictable? Here we go again, me using words we shouldn't be using this early in the game, but is it sectoral growth? Well, um, well, so I would say what we're seeing is essentially those uh, those sectors that are most uh, impacted by this uh, by this. Um, uh, essentially the, the virus spreading. Uh, those sectors are uh, related to tourism. They're related to, uh, you know, food and restaurant services. They're related to s- some personal services. Anything that requires a social gathering or an in-person transaction, those segments are still very much hard hit. And we have seen in the latest months some recovery in, in, in those uh, segments. We feel that, uh, you know, until the vaccine is fully rolled out, we're going to have some very soft growth among these same sectors still. It's going to stagnate for the next little while. We're hoping once this vaccine is, is uh, in place, COVID-19 as a health risk is behind us, we will see a strong recovery over the second half of this year. As we look at, uh, at this growth, the first growth in February, and, and you, you talk about, you know, we're hoping that things will improve significantly in the second half of the year as vaccines arrive. It just reminds us of how deep the hole is that we're 
that we've been in and that we're still largely in. This has been something like we have not experienced before. Um, is there a sector that you feel is going to have perhaps more difficulty recovering than others? Oh, definitely. I think there's um, you know a few longer-term, very important structural changes that we may see from this over the uh, you know even once the crisis has passed. And of course, uh, one immediately thinks of air transportation. I think first, for one, it's going to be slower to recover. We may not see borders reopen as quickly as we see things with uh, uh, reopen within the domestic economy, within our own borders. Uh, so definitely air transportation is one. When you think about air transportation and the hit that may be lasting, in fact, you also think, of course, of aerospace manufacturing, which is an important industry here in Canada. Uh, and, you know, there are other structural changes that I think are going are gonna to be with us. Uh, for instance, telework is, I think, here to stay. That'll have implications for those downtown businesses. There's, there's going to be definitely some reshuffling, some restructuring, and some businesses that are going to have to, uh, I'm afraid, that are probably going to see, um, you know, essentially some consolidation or bankruptcies. If another lockdown were to occur, and it's been talked about, and it's been talked about for Ontario potentially, will the Ontario Science Table calling for exactly that? What's the impact? Well, in, in fact, uh, you know, we just we just saw what happened from the lockdown in December and January in Ontario and Quebec. And uh, essentially, you know, together, those two provinces saw in the order of 230,000 job losses uh, because of that. Now, just to put this in perspective, you know, with, through the through the whole of the uh, recession back in 2008, 2009, you know, we lost about 450,000 jobs at the peak of that. Uh, this time around with COVID-19, where we shut down the economy com for some, and for some sec segments almost completely, yeah, these are huge, huge impacts. And again, you know, we're still 600,000 jobs away from where we should be, away from normal. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it is going to be uh, a struggle, but uh, it's, it's good to hear you say that the takeaway is that your expectation is, all things being equal, whatever that cliche means these days, uh, all things being equal, things will improve in the second half of 2021, as long as the vaccine rollout is what it should be. You know, I think we have uh, everything we need to get this, uh, get the economy recovering again. Through this crisis, uh, we've seen a, ma a massive support for lost income, lost wages, and for uh, lost profits I mean, uh, or lost revenues if you, if you want to look at the business sector. So the support has really held up household incomes. We know that uh, households in Canada have saved an, an, an inordinate amount of money in uh, 2020, so they should be set to spend as long as they're confident about their future uh, financial uh, stability, their future employment prospect. So consumer confidence is really key to driving this, as, as is the vaccine rollout, of course. Senior Canadian scientists have questioned government plans to delay the second dose of COVID-19 vaccine for up to four months. There was a global news story on that. And um, simultaneously, the AstraZeneca vaccine is being mostly refused to anyone over 65 years of age in Canada, not in the rest of the world, um, but in Canada. And both recommendations originated with the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. 
Professor Suresh Tiku is the Director of Vaccinology and Immunotherapeutics of the University of Saskatchewan. We spoke with the professor last weekend, last Sunday, and he expressed his concerns about the extension of the period of time between the first and second vaccination to four months. Uh, professor Tiku, thank you very much for the time. Are you still concerned? My pleasure. Yes, I'm still concerned. And the reason for that is that I'm looking at the same data. Our people, any, all experts are looking at the same data, which they are, the provincial and the federal officials are uh, uh, pointing to. And the data does not support uh, this four-month uh, uh, delay in the second vaccination. Would you say that the first vaccination, receiving a first vaccination, like my uh, listener in Toronto's 88-year-old father received, he now has to wait until July for the second one. He received that other one. Uh, what was the date? Anyway, he received uh, the, the first one. He has to wait until July. Is that first one going to provide the, enough uh, protection for him, or should that second vaccination be delivered much sooner? If uh, you see the data, the real-world data, the efficacy of single dose vaccine is about 50 to 60 percent in 70 year old 70 years and old compared to over 95 percent with two doses after five to six weeks this is the real world data so if uh, after five or six weeks uh, it is only 50 to 60 uh, uh, per, uh, percent so certainly although we don't have really real data about duration of immunity but if you see certain uh, publications it's suggesting that it's getting down or uh, declining uh, after six weeks so it to me it's really troublesome uh, to see this recommendation when it's not does not appear to be supported by any research data and and canada is the only country in the world doing this right that is correct. That's the only country in doing uh, this except uh, UK, which only did for one vaccine initially, AstraZeneca vaccine, and then they had extended up to 12 weeks. But again, there has been a lot of criticism of that, and uh, British Medical Council has really requested them to revisit that because of all the real data which is coming. This real data just came about a week or so ago. And uh, I think in the next three, four weeks, real more data will come, and that should really uh, tell whether this 16 week really is going to work or uh, it's uh, going to create more problems. Okay, but you, if I understand you correctly, you have concerns about the age of someone. So in the case of my Toronto listener, his 88-year-old father, the fact that he's 88, received one vaccination, has to wait now until July for the second one. That concerns you. The age and the time factor concern you. Yes. First thing first, I, my first concern is for everybody. Right, of course. But but particularly with the vulnerable people, because uh, those are the people, old age people, radicalized people, marginalized people, and people with existing conditions. Those are the people who the, we have seen the most deaths in the last one year. And even today, uh, the uh, federal government uh, public health officer accepted that we have failed uh, in protecting the vulnerable population in the last year. But what I'm saying is that we should not fail again rely on that real-world data. Did it surprise you that this advice or this uh, um, suggestion or whatever it's whatever we want to call it, the, uh, the green lighting by the National Advisory Committee on Immunization to extend the time period between the first and the second vaccination to four months, did it surprise you that politicians, that governments almost immediately said, yeah, that's what we'll do? 
Yes, a little bit because uh, what see the what uh, National Advisory Committee is saying that oh this is only the recommendation this is not the rule, so it's up to the uh, go- provincial governments and we will ch- check every day and change it. It creates lot of confusion in everybody. Yes, it does. And the politicians want uh, any anything from anybody to go for whatever they want to do. Yeah. And when we look at the AstraZeneca story and the yeah. suggestion again by the National Advisory Committee on Immunization that the vaccine shouldn't be used on those over 65 years of age. Right. So now we have people who are under 65, I think between 60 and 65, right. receiving the vaccine right. when we all our focus has been to provide protection initially right away for those over 80. They're now waiting and Plus, I, I, you tell me what you think, Professor Tuku, but doesn't the fact, what, what, if the suggestion is made that a vaccine is not good for a certain age cohort, is that not just going to raise vaccine fears among people who are already unsure? That is correct. And if you see this AstraZeneca vaccine right now is used in Europe and uh, in the UK. And uh, I think um, this month, by the end of this month, uh, there will be enough data in U.S. Uh, to get it licensed in U.S. So they all are uh, using it over 65. What I'm trying to say is that uh, there is enough data as of today to show that it's working very well in 65 years and old. So on one hand, uh, we have the data and we are giving uh, recommendation uh, below 65. On the other hand, we don't have much data and we are giving recommendation to 16 weeks for second dose. I don't get it. No, I don't either. So, uh, and I understood what you said. I'm not always, when it comes to scientific uh, explanations, I'm usually lost. But I understood what you said. So we have data that says that the AstraZeneca vaccine is as acceptable, is positive for people 65 years of age and, and older, but we're not providing it to them. But we don't have data to suggest that extending the period between the first and second vaccine to 16 weeks, we don't have data on that, but we're doing that. So we're doing it. We're, we're driving forwards while looking out the back window. Calls, call only creates confusion, only creates it confusion, does. which we do not want right now because there yeah. is already enough confusion. Yeah. Yeah. What do you what do you think is going to happen now? I don't know, because I think uh, because of all these letters and uh, the concerns raised by eminent scientists and eminent immunologists and virologists and vaccinologists, I think uh, the governments, uh, particularly the advisory committee and federal government uh, officials, will have to revisit this and uh, provide the data. Because till they provide the data which they are claiming, uh, nobody is going to believe what they are saying. Yeah. Yeah, and well, that's what you run into. Then you run into people who are saying, "Well, you can't have it both ways. You can't tell me one thing and tell me another, and and expect me to understand what you're saying if your messages are conflicting." Exactly, and uh, at this time, uh, our point, when there is a lot of uh, really hesitancy already in the vaccines and use of vaccines and everything, you don't want to create uh, confusion and frustration in the general public because they don't understand science. Tell them the real thing. Let's get at this story. Global News reporting, and the headline is, That's Just My Luck. Canadians frustrated after CRA blocks 800,000 accounts. Canadians are taking out their frustration on social media after CRA locked roughly 800,000 online taxpayers' accounts on Saturday. So what in the heck is going on and why? It's not the first time that our federal government has run into issues with accessibility, online accessibility. David Fraser is a partner at McInnes Cooper. He's one of Canada's leading internet technology and privacy lawyers. He's the founder of the Canadian Privacy Law blog. David, thank you very much for the time. Uh, Where's the problem? Does it lie with CRA 
online security? I'm not sure we know exactly where the where the problem is. Um, it certainly has been my sense that that CRA has not implemented adequate security with respect to their their online services. They've had a number of breaches, and I've certainly heard of a number of incidents where uh, bad guys have been able to use information they've gotten elsewhere in order to get into people's CRA accounts, uh, change their direct deposit information, so redirect uh, tax refunds. Um, in some cases, sign people up for CERB, um, and uh, and so there's a whole lot that's been uh, that's been going on. On one hand, I think kind of locking all those accounts is may in fact be a very sensible thing to do just off the bat if those accounts are vulnerable to being taken over. Um, but at the same time, they should be making sure that they have adequate kind of customer service, quote unquote, in order to give those people timely assistance. As I've certainly heard of a large number of people waiting on hold for like an entire day in order to get in touch with the, with the human being at CRA. And then in some cases, uh, as was reported by Global, um, they finally get through, talk to somebody, supposedly fixed, and the next day it's not. Well, yeah, and how do they know uh, who to block, whose online account to block? What what were the indicators that these 800,000, roughly, are the Canadians whose accounts need to be blocked? How do we know there's not more? I'm I'm not sure, and and they're not uh, and they're not telling, and and I wouldn't be surprised if they would never if they would never tell. Certainly, it's not uncommon for organizations to notice patterns of suspicious activity, uh, and then to take steps to to mitigate against that. So, those might have been accounts that were associated with some other data breach, uh, uh, where a company had lost information, uh, reported that loss to CRA, and CRA has locked those accounts down as a as a precaution. Uh, but that would be that would be speculating. Um, but certainly, uh, if if I was one of those folks, um, I would be concerned about. Well, what's going on behind this? What was the what was the cause of this? And kind of as you said, why am I one of the eight hundred thousand and not mm-hmm. one of the rest of everybody? Are there further concerns for these eight hundred thousand people that go beyond their being blocked by CRA? Uh, certainly. So it's it's also my understanding that uh, that certainly the the tax filing deadline for for people who are employees isn't until the end of April. Um, but there are people who have gotten their, for example, all their T-slips lined up and we're looking to e-file uh, and we're looking to get their tax refund because this is a pretty difficult time for a large number of people because of the, because of the pandemic, uh, and they're not able to e-file. And certainly if they were to put a printed tax return in the mail, they wouldn't have any confidence in, in getting, it, uh, getting a refund uh, anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that there's that lends a significant amount of urgency for a large number of people. Yeah. The question that I'm really concerned about, or I would like to ask, is if this personal information, and look, the reasons we have passwords, right? Um, as you, you know far better than I. If, if their information with CRA is compromised, might their information be compromised in other areas as well, other dealings they have, maybe with commercial institutions, with banks, and so on? Oh, absolutely. So if you think of the information that, uh, that that particular Department of Government has about individuals, that's probably your most sensitive information. And that would be all the sort of information that would be used for all kinds of mischief, identity theft and, and fraud. So they would know not only your, your social insurance number, obviously, uh, your name, your address. They would know your employer. They would know your banking information. They would know all of your investments um, and everything else like that. And so somebody who's able to get into one of those accounts and, and pull out information could not only 
do mischief on your behalf with CRA, but could also um, do a lot of mischief in other places. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I just found this post by uh, CRA to be a little self-serving. Uh, they said that user IDs and passwords affected, quote, were not involved in a breach of CRA systems, but may be available to unauthorized third parties through sources external to the CRA. This is, if you, if you start to dissect that particular sentence, you can come up with all sorts of interesting responses or, or interpretations. Yeah. And, and it does support the suggestion that, that information from those people was compromised someplace else. And, uh, and so they're locking out those accounts as a, as a precaution. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the, in, in this day and age, and, and I don't envy them the position that they're in. Uh, certainly, I, I don't think they were particularly known for customer service before the pandemic. Now all their employees are having to work, having to work remotely. Uh, everybody else is trying to do things electronically. Uh, they, they have always been set up so that you could uh, get yourself a CRA account without actually kind of presenting yourself in person with right. any ID or anything else like that. So if anybody has your last year's tax return, they have enough information to go in and create a CRA account on your behalf or change your existing CRA account. And that's a, that's an unpleasant situation to, to be in. Uh, that's, a, that's not the highest level of, uh, highest level of authenticity or, or security. Um, but are they, in a pandemic, um, asking people to go to a Service Canada office and show some ideas uh, is kind of off the table as well. So it's a tricky spot to be in. Hopefully these folks won't be too inconvenienced, and, uh, and I do think that uh, the CRA needs to step up and, uh, and support as many of these people as they can. Do you have any concerns that the same may be true of other ministries? Because we have, as I said at the beginning of the segment, as you well know, again, far better than I, the federal government has had previous issues where there have been problems with, uh, with, uh, with identity and passwords and confidentiality. Oh, absolutely. And, and so, you know, cybersecurity is an issue across the board, public sector and, and private sector. And, uh, and there are bad guys who are looking to do all sorts of mischief uh, wherever they can find information and wherever they can find, find something of, a, of value. Uh, so there isn't a legal requirement for any of these departments to notify even the privacy commissioner. There's a government policy that says they have to. Um, and once a year, we hear stats out of the Office of the Privacy Commissioner about a huge number of data breaches, but we almost never hear the details of them, kind yeah. of what's what's the cause? What have they actually kind of gone and tried to address the root causes, which is something that businesses have to do, something that I work with businesses to do regularly. Right. Well, um, you... did, did anybody get canned if, uh, if it was because of a, a mistake or, or lax policies or procedures? We'll never know. Well, I'll take an educated guess on that one. Uh, <laughs> but what advice would you give for the 800,000 people who've been locked out of their accounts, what should they fundamentally do to just safeguard themselves beyond the CRA issue? Well, certainly if, if I had noticed that I was one of those people, I would be concerned about where else my information had, had gone from. The sort of information that would likely be of interest to um, or would be used by bad guys in order to compromise a CRA account would be either you have a username and password that you reuse or recycle, um, and that's something that people definitely should not be doing because if it's compromised one place, it gets compromised in multiple places. I would be wondering if there's anybody who has my tax return from last year or previous years, because that's, that's what could be used to reset a CRA account. Um, so do I have a tax advisor who might have been compromised? Have I used an, an online tax preparation service mm-hmm. uh, that might have been that might have been compromised? All of those would have an obligation to notify individuals if their information is, is compromised. Um, but... Uh, 
but presumably many of these people haven't gotten such notices, otherwise all those dots would be connected. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.